Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mark Grows Podcast. Today I am joined by Koshin Paley Ellison. And you're a sensei, which I hadn't heard the term sensei since like Karate Kid. So I'm, I'm so, I was so excited to use that word. You're so, you're many things. And you're also an author, a Zen teacher, a Jungian psychotherapist, a certified chaplaincy educator. And after many years as a chaplain and psychotherapist, Koshin co-founded the New York Center for Contemplative Care, which offers contemplative approaches to care through education, personal caregiving, and Zen practice. Today, New York's Zen Center's methodologies are internationally recognized and have touched the lives of tens of thousands of individuals. Goshen is a world-renowned thought leader in contemplative care. He's also the author of the book, Untangled, Walking the Eightfold Path to Clarity, Courage, and Compassion, and also the book, Wholehearted, Slow Down, Help Out, Wake Up, and the co-editor of Awake at the Bedside, Contemplative Teachings on Palliative and End-of-Life Care. His work has been featured in the New York Times, PBS, CBS, Sunday Morning, and many other publications. Koshin, it's such an honor to have you here today. Really a treat to be with you, Mark. I'm curious. I The line I know is in your book, and I've heard you speak about it a few times, about death. And, and the line is, all the time I work with dying people, only a few know they are dying. And I was really touched by that line because I think there was, you know, a recognition in myself that the confrontation of mortality is both liberating and confronting. And I was curious, can you maybe explain that statement more and our aversion to facing death? Sure. Well, I can just tell you my thoughts. You know, very often, you know, at parties or social gatherings with friends, people say, oh, what do you do? And, you know, so sometimes the conversation about dying comes up because one of the many things that we do is being with people as they're actively dying. But really, the awareness is so clear in that 
all the time I'm with people who are dying. It's just so we don't know. We assume. And really, I learned that in my clinical training where I worked in the emergency department and it became crystal clear that people were coming in there all day long and all night long who didn't expect their lives to be ending at that moment. Mm -hmm. And most of them, a good portion of them, were young people. Heart attacks, accidents, strokes, stabbings, all the whole thing. And, uh, and what was also so striking were that the people who had people, because I just want to also acknowledge that, you know, there was that study that just came out that 35% of Americans in this time, 2023, share that they don't have a single friend. Mm. So I also experienced that in the emergency department. Not everybody had someone to call. And most of the people who had people to call, there was so much regret in how they last met or like as they were leaving, I can't believe I was not even paying attention. I can't believe that you know, we were fighting and I was irritated about some you know stupid thing. And so just always learning that, wow, we assume that we're not going to die. <laughs> yeah, so true. We assume that we're gonna just, you know, I'll see you later. You know, we sometimes like going out like, See you later. But, you know, I learned that crystal clear, that's not always so. So maybe you can hear in the background the sound of a fire truck, which we live in Manhattan and our center is on this very busy thoroughfare. So you'll hear that anytime we speak. And I have come to deeply appreciate that awareness. Like, oh, there is a fire. Hmm. There is an ambulance. Help is on the way. And help is available. And any moment, what we think is not going to happen may. <laughs> right. Right. And so how do we and how do I shift my life to like, you know, basically I often say to myself, giddy up, you know, like to, let, let's go. And what am I waiting for? Many people, we live in kind of circling the plane. And when are we going to land the plane? You know, and actually begin to bring our values and our actions together. When are we going to do that? And the lessons from people who are surprised that they're dying and the people who were diagnosed with a terrible illness of some kind in general what they all have in common is like what was i doing hmm. all years or those few years you know what was i doing what was i waiting for you know waiting for when i get older waiting for when i retire waiting for when i have enough money waiting for I remember I met this one couple, so amazing. They were airlifted into the hospitals working in. And he had an aneurysm that burst. And 
when I met him, he was he had just been flown in and he was already kind of actively dying. There was nothing really they could do. He was bleeding out in his brain. 60 years old. You know, nuts. And uh, I said, you know, I was asking the wife, you know, that his wife, like, wow, you know, what happened? He said, oh, we were going to his retirement party. Because this was the, going to be the beginning of our life together. And all these years, he worked for almost 40 years so that we could then live. And she mm. said, that was so crazy. And now, where is he? So I think that in so many ways, it's just like to live is to know that you're going to die. And most of us don't know. Even though it's like one of the three things we can, four things that we can totally count on, like no matter what, like fine, guaranteed. Yeah. What are the other three things we can? We're going to get older. Yeah. That's a, I got some like, grays that agree with that. But even like, you know, little babies, you know, not all the babies, you know, we met a baby once that lived for three minutes. It, it did age for yeah. minutes, you know, and they, we can count on that and we can count on some kind of sickness will come for sure, something, and that everything will change. Mm -hmm. You know, that nothing you can't really hold on to anything. And to me, the joy of that is kind of ecstatic. And because if you really don't turn away from it and you really look at like all the things that you're afraid of, which are usually those things, mm -hmm. but those are the things that like, There's no escape from them. You can like run, you can <laughs> use a lot of cream, you know. <laughs> it's still gonna happen. Still gonna happen, you know. And, and of course, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be as healthy as we can be until we can't, right? Or it doesn't mean not to make an effort, but it's, you know, but actually being aware that death is inevitable is so enlivening and actually gives at least me more motivation to care for my body mind and for those around me to not miss the opportunity and not hold back. Yeah. Why do you think the aversion to acknowledging and confronting mortality somehow also seems to be correlated to the aversion to fully coming alive, like to fully living. Because you think, if I'm not going to confront mortality, then that means I must be immersed in life. So why do you think that? Well, mostly I think that it's a fear of living because people are afraid to step outside of what they're familiar with. You know, and I think it's not a contemporary issue. You know, if you read Yuval Harari, you know, his incredible work and, you know, for the last 400,000 years, Homo sapiens have been doing like stupid things, you know, <laughs> uh, 
bonking other people over the head because they were different. We have been mostly afraid. We live very fearfully. And so I think that, you know, I often think of you know, the founder of Buddhism, who was just, you know, a guy, like it could have been named Mark or Koshin or, you know, whatever. And what he really realized at a certain point that he was like, you know, trying to do a lot of different things. He was using, listening to some interesting podcasts and <laughs> buying different apps. And at a certain point, he knew that he was not really confronting his fear. And so he sat under this tree famously, well, you know, maybe, you know, as the story goes. And really met his fear. He said, I'm not going to get up from here until I can see through my fear. Because hmm. he realized that, you know, kind of trying a lot of different things, it's not going to do it. Or it wasn't doing it for him, at least. And he really saw how powerful fear is and how it was controlling him, you know, Recently, we had a retreat and with a bunch of clinicians and, and also volunteers and people who are involved in service work in the contemplative care retreat that we have every year. And we do this thing where we often do, which is cross the line if you, and you cross the line if you have this experience. And one of the things that we, talk a lot about our values and so cross the line if you still feel that basically controlled by your fear hmm. and what was so moving is that we had gotten to a place in the retreat there where it felt like people were pretty honest and close and most people crossed the line they put their bodies into it and said yes i'm still basically motivated by fear and so I think that we just can't really underestimate. And I know that's true for me. Like until I can really pierce like what I'm afraid of, I'm not going to really be with you. Like there you are, Mark. How do we even make that self-assessment? Like how do I know if the way I'm living is still fear-based? Ask some friends. Mm -hmm. True yeah. reflections, eh? If you have really good friends who can really see you and hear you. You know, our friend Ayo Yutende, you know, she talks about, you know, we really all need to have our pips, like Gladys had our pips, you know. <laughs> and uh, those are the people who know your moves, you know, and they know you. And such a great image, right? It's so good. And so, like, they're the people who are like, they know how you move and they know when you're afraid and they know when you're hesitating in your life. I also think a lot about that expression, like, oh, people are doing the best they can. And really, are we really? I think that same when I hear people are doing the best they can with what they had. And I'm like, yeah. And there's so much conscious, untapped potential that yeah. we know, like, you're conscious that there's a conversation you need to have. You're conscious there's a choice you need to make. But that, like, why do you think we stay suspended in that? Like, you know, a better life is available 
on the other side of the letting go, the breakup, that's saying I love you, saying I hate you, saying, no, maybe not hate, but not with a Zen teacher. But, you know, that there's, or I'm, I'm upset, I feel distant, I've, I'm, I don't love my work anymore. Like these mm. truths that if we release them, ah, now we're working with the material. And maybe that is the material before it's the material. What do you think? I think that it's very comfortable to stay one-sided. It's very comfortable to stay even in our, you know, what feels bad, you know? And there's a story that Jack Cornfield tells that I've loved so much where he says, you know, like he was studying with this teacher, Ajahn Chah, who was like this incredible guy. And, uh, and Jack was like, who is that guy who comes around from time to time? Do you know the story? No. That's so great. And, and he's like, oh, you know, he comes around here. And after a little while, it's like, this place smells bad. It smells like shit here. You know, like, I'm going like, to go somewhere else. This place isn't the real thing, you know? And then he goes to like Japan and tries Zen for a while. And, and after a while, that place stinks too. <laughs> and then he goes back to America and tries, you know, Christianity or something and then comes back to Tibet and, you know, and then comes back just always on the move. And after a while, every place smells like shit. And he's like, <laughs> what he doesn't realize is that, you know, actually, I think I wrote about this in, yeah, in Untangled. Just the story is so good. And because he said, but what he doesn't realize is like he's the one carrying around his own shit bag. <laughs> and what happens is like, that finally he sets it down and it starts to smell. Mm. That's like all of us. And so I think it's super important just to be humble enough to realize we all are doing that in some way. And that often prevents us because we still are thinking like, oh, this place isn't good or that teacher is not good or this whatever is not good. And so it's just like, we don't want to see through our pattern. So instead we just like, no, this stinks and I'm going to go somewhere else. And it actually prevents us from seeing through our fear because we're so into the habit that we even reject loving relationships or places that challenge us because it's, we're scared and we're, we feed the fear more than we feed fearlessness. And to me, the beauty of a steady practice, whatever, whatever you're practicing actually, but like really steady and deep practice is that you begin to drop down into the place where you're like, oh yeah, look at me. I'm doing that thing again. I'm really learning how to face myself. And so that we stop fooling ourselves, you know, and <laughs> there's this other Zen teacher who used to like wake up every morning and say, are you awake? And he would answer, yes, I am. And then he would say, don't be deceived. And he would say, no, I won't. Because I think we have loved that. And he used to do that apparently all the time. But out loud, you know, and uh, 
which is so generous. <laughs> it is. It is. That you get a window into his own humanity. You know, I think we put teachers on a pedestal and then we don't humanize them. And I think part of teaching is actually expressing the challenges we face ourselves, which like saying that you're a great product that uh, must be replicated and I've got everything down. To me, that's the biggest red flag in the world. Super creepy. Yeah, it is creepy. It is creepy because there's such a manipulative nature to the projection of perfection. And if anything, it's like, I think there's a resonance to, to integrity. Like there's a resonance to humility. I want to tell you something I find to be true. Something that all humans have in common is that their nervous systems are generally dysregulated. We walk around unconsciously, never realizing that our state of being is what is causing us to feel anxious, stressed, and overwhelmed. So we go about our lives and our work and our eat and our sleep, repeat, without taking a moment to take a breath. And if we don't address the state of our nervous systems, we're always going to feel like we're on a hamster wheel, and, and it really never stops. But the good news is, is that there are many ways that we can actually regulate our nervous system and finally slow down enough to see clearly to exhale. Now, personally, I've been regulating mine in just minutes every day with a breathwork practice on open, and I think you would really love it. I love doing breathwork every morning or before I sit down to work for the day because it helps me ensure that I'm fully present for all the things on my to-do list. I don't want to just do. I want to do things right and be present to them. Right now, I'm really vibing with the performance breath to help me with my focus. This six-minute interval breathing pattern helps me increase my lung capacity and my resilience to stress. I love this powerful technique because it helps me perform better in two important areas of my life, my fitness and my work. Now, the best part about it is that it's only six minutes a day, which is awesome for my busy schedule. And Open has made many other different breathwork practices that I have tried and that I love that we get to choose from. So I can switch it up anytime I want. And since I'm done in minutes, I can't not afford to do it because it helps me be more productive than I would have been had I not done it. So if you want to stay focused and have optimal performance just like me, start off the new year right with Open. Get 30 days free by visiting withopen.com slash create the love. Again, that's 30 days free by visiting withopen.com slash create the love. But also, why, why do you think we get trapped in you know, that story that you told, I see this a lot and, you know, also reflecting on the projection it is too, that we just often don't think our own shit stinks or we don't believe it can. Why do I think that? Yeah. Like what is the trap that makes us not even have the ability to, or if we smell shit, it's, it's not our shit, you know? For a long time, I really held a very specific feeling of my own victimization. You know, and I had experienced terrible things. You know, sexual violence, physical violence, anti-Semitic violence. I've been shot at, like, you know, serious, serious things. And I had built, for good reasons, for a, a time, an identity around that. Which is, you know classic kind of trauma response mm -hmm. and i'm so grateful you know you know because otherwise who knows but at a certain point i realized that it was not allowing me to actually see what else was true 
And I was walking around as if those things were still happening actively, which was so painful. And actually I realized that I didn't, wasn't able to trust people, even though I was still trying to project, like I'm really nice. And I was always trying to get everyone to like me. And I wanted people to like me because if they didn't like me, it was dangerous. Mm back then. <laughs> so I was like living in a dream. You know, there's a wonderful teacher named Nansen from like medieval period where in China where he said, you know, these days people see a peony as if it's in a dream. And I feel like I was doing, I was seeing life as if it was like a nightmare. Mm. And I was still living it out. And I share that because it was really difficult to actually have compassion for other people because other people didn't actually exist for me in not a full way, kind of, kind of. They kind of existed and kind of didn't because I was so afraid of what could be that, that the fear felt real as opposed to a feeling and for me when we do that then it's kind of like what going back to that you know that guy shakyamuni sitting under the tree like what he realized in the end was oh my goodness like in the morning he was like mm. and what he said was oh house builder thou art seen at last the ridge pole is shattered Nevermore will you build a house of sorrow. And I remember thinking when I heard that the first time, I was like, that is some gangster stuff. <laughs> like, who knows how to do that? Right. To actually shatter the ridge pole, like to take apart and to really take responsibility of like, I'm creating this sorrowful, fearful life. And I really saw that and it pierced me in such a painful and important way. And I feel like so grateful for that. So grateful because actually it was the beginning of me turning the light to where I didn't want it, you know? And I feel like that that continues to be my basic instruction inside of myself lean in lean, lean in and giddy up yeah yeah well to bring that because how do you even you know when you're accessing the depths of the pain that you spoke of your experience of suffering to access that and not also be able to access joy and possibility and in levity because I, I what i love so much about my experience of your work and even in this conversation is that you bring levity to it it's like i i drop in and i'm in the pain but then you you bring humor in so i'm in the pain but i'm also in joy so i get to experience this contrast and like what an art isn't that what all the best comedians do is they like tell you a truth about culture or society or or their perception of it and then all of a sudden, and you're like, oh, and then all of a sudden you're laughing. So how do we access humor in the space of doing that? Is it, is it that life, 
if you take it too seriously, it, you know, it'll drag your shit right down, you know? Well, it's, you know, it's like to be completely serious because life is serious, right? Yeah. And life and death, you know, it's like, <laughs> this is it. It's immediate. Folks. Yeah. And it's like that visceralness of like, this is our one shot. And how are you going to be in it? Yeah. And that doesn't need more seriousness. It's <laughs> so true. It doesn't. There's enough seriousness about that. Like that's already like, mm. <laughs> like we don't need to be like, well, you know, you know, you have to be serious on top of that. It's crazy. And at least for me, you know, Same. like I want to, and to realize that, you know, as our block is this really where we live in Manhattan is really funny because there's like all these beautiful gardens on our block, which are so lucky ducks about. And it's also a block that a lot of people like to walk their dogs. <laughs> so there's like a lot of shit, you know? <laughs> so to me, it's like the perfect and like, you know, of course some of the people like, I don't want to pick that up, you know? And so like, they leave it. And I feel like it's just the perfect image for life. So I wake up in the morning and you go down and see what's flowering, you know, how like, you know, the, the gardens have these seasons, you know, all four seasons. And so does the dog shit, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's, it's kind of amazing. And like, you know, it turns out there's big dogs and little dogs. So there's big shits and little shits. And like, it's just, it's so great, you know, and wonderful to just notice that it's all part of it. Mm. And, you know, people be like, oh, you know, I can't believe there's that. It's, you know, would it be nice if they picked it up? Yeah, of course it would be nice. But it's also kind of amazing. Ah, oh. I remember <laughs> Chodo was my husband. We we're standing on a corner, and this person comes up with their giant dog, the like Saint Bernard, and it takes this huge dump right next to us, like about an inch from my foot, <laughs> and she looks at it. And she looks at us and just leaves with her dog. It was just so fascinating. And she had just like kind of a blank look. And it was such an interesting moment to me about like, wow, I could make her into an enemy. Mm. I could make her into a terrible person. I could, all of these things, I could make it into something. Oh, see, like the world has gone to the world has gone to shit because people don't care about each other. Yeah. Or I could really think of her and say, like, wow, what is going on in her life? That she doesn't really register that other people are there. And what must that be like? Like to actually use our life because it's always running out to be curious, to be open, to not be overly serious and to care. 
Do you think that contemplative step, that curious? Yeah. Because if I go to judgment right there, which yeah. let's be honest, uh, if I'm in New York, that's I, that access it seems quicker. I've been to dog parks in New York. I've seen a fair amount of poop on the street. Judge yeah, yeah, that it would be immediate. Like they don't care about the streets. They're selfish. They're self-involved. But when I go to that curiosity that you're inviting, is that what true presence is? Well, I would I would never say what I'm doing is true presence. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Is it the attempt at because are you really in the now if you're curious rather than judging? Yeah, yeah. You're gonna redefine Webster's dictionaries versions of these things, if you don't mind. You know what I mean? That like the act of curiosity. Well, what I can tell you is that it feels free. Yeah. And feel not a prisoner of reactivity and habit. So I feel in that moment like a lot of things are possible. Mm -hmm. How Mm. cool is that? So I can actually have flexibility in my mind. And if I can have flexibility and curiosity in my mind in those moments, it feels great. So I always try to, you know, actually, Shakyamuni put, uh, give, you know, for some reason, is very with us today. And he said to his son, he's like, you know, always when you're you know, doing something, check how it is in your mind and your body and also how it is with the people you're with in the beginning, middle, and end. And you'll learn a lot. And it's like such a cool instruction. Like what a parenting instruction, Mm -hmm. right? And this to his son. Like, wow, check it out. Like not only, but I love that what he says is like, don't just check it out for yourself. Check it out how it, what it does to the other person. And so what I experienced, like, for example, with that woman, like I felt and like felt like wow like what is her deal and like she clearly likes a big dog I wonder why she likes a big dog <laughs> maybe she always liked big dogs maybe like you know it just she just became a person of person of interest yeah totally and curiosity and so I think what it does is just open things and how do we want to live knowing we only have a certain amount of moments. You know, I think about, you know, my friend Marie Howe, who's this amazing poet. So amazing. And so she wrote this poem. She wrote this incredible book of poems called What the Living Do and about her brother dying of AIDS. And and she's very funny and sincere, and the poems are so powerful. And one poem, she just talks about, you know, her brother just like, oh, at this point, he's 28 and he's washed every dish under the cold water. Every dish that he's ever going to wash is done. Hmm. Like, wow. And that poem itself, it was just a part of a poem, like inspired me, like, right, even washing the dish. Like, I'm only going to wash so many dishes. Yeah. You know, it's like, this is the everyday wonder that is always available. And I think that, you know, it's like one of the reasons I wrote Untangled because I felt like there was still some like residue 
that I wanted to work with around my own suffering. And I always feel like, and you hear the ambulance. Yeah. Help is on the way. The orchestra is playing to your words. Yeah. Like somebody is back there. And you know, may they get to where they need to go. So like learning how to come back to that. Someone is having an unexpected experience. And I'm going to have one too. So how can I be more with you? Like, look at you, Mark. Like, I'm just, like, I'm. we have this chance to see each other. To, like, really look at you. The color of your shirt. That wristband you have of your ring. Your face. Like, this is it. Like, this is, like, the whole deal. And assuming that there's going to be more is crazy. Yeah, that thought seems to rob us of this. Like just the, we're always preparing. I think it's Alan Watts I heard say that we're always preparing for another moment and never being in the one. We're always hoping for a different moment than the one we're in. Like the, you would never think of something that some people lament, like washing a dish. But when it's your last moment, you'll miss a dish. You know, that's the, you know, I think about, I get, I'm emotionally even thinking about like even the hard parts of, of being in partnership, you know, and how much I love my wife and, 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 uh, there's always a, there's the evolution and the, the potential of my soul's expression that loves her feedback but the human 3D version of me doesn't always love it. Um, <laughs> but I love her feedback. Yeah, exactly. Like, thank you so much. I love you. But, but actually that I have just grief at the idea that one day that won't be available to me or her, which means it won't be able, available to either of us. And that's why I think of commitment in such a different way now because when I was afraid of commitment because a commitment meant I was going to be betrayed or, or abandoned or lied to, or I was going to lose myself or all of those things that I never fully opened, you know, like you were talking about, like the past was always replicating itself in my protective layers and limitations. And then when I think now about, you know, a, a challenge that my partner and I are going through. We just, uh, we have a, a seven and a half month old now. So we're, we've inserted a few new challenges. Um, <laughs> I see all of it as material now. And it's like such a different way to orient to it. Like thinking, oh, I'm in the gym here. Like this is the stuff that's gritty here is in the container of the sacred space that lives between us is we're getting to work with this unique material that's only present because of the alchemy that her and I, just like this conversation is being born only through the potentiality of you and I, but just like how I'm going to miss that, you know, like I'm going to, and I think by just the record, I just get sadness thinking about it, but it's like such a sense of love. Like what a gift we have to be able to be, 
to be able to learn this stuff, to be able to have these conversations, to be able to, like for you to write a book to work with material so that we may work with ours. Like that to me is like, what a beautiful gift to bring your material to the world. Your, your stuff that you're, like other people would say, I got shame. I'm going to put this, <laughs> I'm not going to write a book about it. I'm going to put it in a little box. I'm going to develop an addiction so I don't ever have to face that. But you've actually said, this is the work I do. Yeah, and that we're never done. You know, like I feel like the joy of living is that we can keep taking a look and that we can actually be on the adventure. You know, that <laughs> like I always think about, you know, we have all these superhero movies and the Marvel universe. And like nobody would watch a movie where like Iron Man was like, it's too hard, man. <laughs> right. I'm just going to stay doing whatever you know, or Wonder Woman, like whatever, like no one would watch that, you know, nobody cares, you know, and it's so interesting how we treat ourselves in that way, hmm. as opposed to saying, what kind of adventure of experience can I have today? Because I would like to learn something new. And, you know, there's a wonderful Zen teacher named Shunru Suzuki, and he said, you know, maybe our whole thing is, you know, learning how to love people. And he said, you know, and some people are very hard to learn how to love. <laughs> That's good. So beautiful, right? And so, and so true, you know, and like that, like some people are just really hard to love. Like some, each of us usually have some edge with someone that we like, don't want to love them, you know? Yeah. And the beauty is like, to me, it's like, all oh, right, then that's the opportunity. Like there's someone in my mind, you know, like who there is my challenge, you know? And so how do I figure out where, how to love them, you know, unsentimentally, but just allow them to be fully a human, a being who loves and suffers, you know? To be presented with the woman with the St. Bernard who drops a nuke right in front of you, you know, and and to be invited to that curious space of like, I wonder what's going on in her life. I think about the, I mean, I wanted to come back to you to the funny metaphor that you were talking about, that like, here you are, beautiful gardens, and here you are, little grenades everywhere, you know, little landmines. And yet that is life, like that is life. I was listening to um, a lecture from Ram Das recently, and he was talking about there will only be a part of you that's afraid to be burned if there's a part of you that's still trying to protect itself. Like the fire is only too hot if there's a part of you that's still trying to protect yourself. And I was thinking, because in that week, my son was sick, and that was scary because it was the first time. And then my dog had an infection under his tongue, and he couldn't eat. And I was thinking about how painful life can be sometimes. But I was also, when I, I happened to come upon that lecture at the same time, of course, <laughs> and I was so struck by that line because I thought, yeah, if I'm trying to protect myself from this experience, from suffering, from feeling the pain of my dog, the love I have for him, my son, then I'll get burned. But if I'm just with that, then I get to experience love. Like that's love. And it's such a strange paradox because I didn't go to school and learn that. I had to learn that through 
developing compassion and curiosity for my own anger and grief and suffering. And so when you wrote Untangled, what were you hoping to untangle from? Many things. <laughs> but I would say the theme of it was that part of my suffering was that in one of the houses I grew up in, you know, it was said to not talk about it. You didn't talk about how you were suffering. And if you did, you were betraying the family. Well, I, what I was really seeing was that there were layers of that that seemed thin, but were coding everything. Where I wasn't really even being completely transparent with myself around my own pain. So there was layers of my own pain that I was not really experiencing because even telling it to myself mm -hmm. felt like that little terrible teaching of like, you don't betray the family, you know, don't. And like keeping it a secret and suffering alone and lonely in that suffering. I wanted to see through that and to say like, you know, what will happen if I can just say what it is? And, you know, writing has been always a path of freedom for me and learning how to teach from that. And I see my role as student and teacher as one thing. And then just like, <laughs> and, and I feel like I want to be the kind of student that's always learning. And I always want to be a teacher who's always a student who's mm -hmm. always learning. And so I wanted to learn about how I suffered and what was I still, what were the areas that I was still holding on to? And I really came up to this sense of this cage that was the size of my body. Mm. And this image came in the writing of this cage, the size of my body that I used to think was armor. But it was a cage. And what was felt interesting is like, it really felt like the front was open, but I was still in it. Like I still wouldn't get step out of it because I wasn't really aware of what was on the sides of it and the back of it. Mm -hmm. And I really needed to explore the ways in which I was holding on to some of these stories as identity and how that was really changing me in ways that were painful. And the funny and the paradox is that seeing through it and seeing it more clearly is also painful. And yet it's kind of like when you rip off a Band-Aid or rip off like a piece of like tape or something. It's like it hurts, but it only hurts for much less time. And so like learning how to do that and like, oh yeah, that hurts. Ooh, out, out, out. <laughs> <laughs> but it's 
But it's like, then it's done. It's like, I said it. I said it. It was said. And there was a freedom in the saying that was incredibly powerful and incredibly important. And you, I even feel like kind of revolutionary in myself. Mm -hmm. And I just got very close to things that I had tried to keep myself away from, in particular, the abuse. And, and in particular, um, this one memory that I had of being hunted in the woods and not by these guys in four-wheelers in the night, you know, hunting me as a Jew in the woods. And I've, and that memory actually came while I was like really trying, I was, I felt like there was something that I didn't remember. And that came to me and literally I was, I was on my bike and fell off my bike when that memory came to me. And, uh, and just, so I think that these moments are very important to, and also trusting the moments that they're ready to unlock and to feel that I have enough ground because I feel also very grounded and very receptive at the same time, which to me is like a very important blend. So I feel very connected to community. I've got my pips. Yeah. And I have a very, you know, strong practice and an amazing analyst that I've been working with for a long time. Wonderful teacher. And, you know, so I just feel like I feel ready for it. And I can receive this kind of, you know, a shock of it. And I didn't. And of course, that unlocked a lot of other things and allowed me in some ways to just feel much more grounded and open and curious in ways that continue to surprise me. The words you use there of like community and like open to the revelations and also and needing to be grounded. How do you recommend for people to do that, to prepare? You know, because I, I love that you referenced that there's like it all kind of comes at the perfect time, you know, and, and when you're ready and maybe sometimes when you're not perceptually ready, like you, you don't feel like you're on firm ground, but the memory comes or the thought comes or the feeling comes or you meet a lady on the street with a St. Bernard. It's like, yeah, how, do, how do you recommend people find or create resources like that? Yeah, a few things that really come to mind. One is that we need our pips. We need to develop. You know, in this time, again, 35% of people reporting, which then usually means it's higher. Mm -hmm. Not having a single friend. And don't forget that some of these people are also married who said. Mm -hmm. So, and also being alone in a relationship or feeling lonely in a relationship is even more intense in a way. Find your people, find your pips, like find one, start with one you know, and connect to community-based organizations, allow yourself to belong 
even if you feel like you're like, that's the last thing in the world that feels okay, find some way to connect to others. And, you know, someone once asked the Dalai Lama, like, well, I feel so alone and lonely and burnt out and I don't know what to do. And he's like, well, serve others then. So, mm. you know, learning how to volunteer or show up somewhere where you can actually be of service and meet others who share that value, build some value-based relationships, it's major. And uh, that's, the, to me, the, maybe the most important one. And ask for the help that you need and see if you can get some. Yeah. Learning to do that. How do we begin to develop or create a resource, the courage to move towards this entanglement? Well, don't know and look around. You know, if you get maybe, you know, you're thinking like, I have no idea. Well, okay, don't have any idea. And say, like, wow, you know, let me really think about this. Can I write about it? What's the form that supports your inquiry? Like, take a walk and reflect on it talk to a friend, talk to a therapist, you know, like, like, how do I get out of my little circle? I think about the great bodhisattva named Albert Einstein, who said, you know, our great work is to widen out the circles of compassion. You know, like, that's our work, is to actually just do that. And so, how do we do that? And... To me, not knowing is a really important way. And how do I just try things out? Why don't I look at meetup groups or whatever that is, you know, to find, go to a museum, go to a community center, volunteer, go to a soup kitchen, whatever it is, you know, just find a way to go beyond who you think you are. And I always find that in those kinds of spaces, we find other people who are also going beyond who they think they are. And there's something usually sweet there. It feels like that's the same experience of recognizing um, mortality too, because in order to go beyond who you are, it, that perception of self has to die, the limitations have to die, the possibility of birth yes that reminds me of another story <laughs> you're really bringing it out in me Mark. i love it i love it so there's this story that actually Chota often tells but there's about this salt boy and he felt so lonely and nobody else was made of salt and he was like mm, you know feeling so lonely and alone wandering around here and there, trying things out and always feeling like, mm. until one day you like went to the beach and it was like just sitting there feeling sad and as we do, 
And then he decided to go into the ocean. And so he went into the ocean and he began to dissolve. And just as he was becoming the last grain of salt, he said, ah, now I know who I am. Mm. You know, I like to allow ourselves to dissolve the idea of who we think we are and what we're afraid of. Our self-limiting ideas don't tend to be helpful. <laughs> no. No. They don't usually no. let us step towards, you know, full embodiment, fully expressed, fully. I think about, you know, the fears that live in f stepping fully into yourself. That if I do, then I'll be rejected. I'll be not loved, I'll be. But at the same time, you are living in that perpetual experience by not allowing yourself. You blame other people, but really you're the source of that move from from martyrdom or victim because you spoke about your own journey of that. It seems to be like it's a moment, right? Like a moment where we have a clarity that we've been gaining power through the perception or or projection of powerlessness. But then all of a sudden we say no more. I think about, I used to work in oncology as a, as a sales rep. Oh, yeah, I, I was in pharma for 14 years. That's a, I'm moving through the karmic loop of this. But, but it, it taught me so much. And one of the things that it taught me was in that experience with the oncologist. I worked a day where I did a preceptorship. And I sat in on a session that he was doing with someone who had kidney cancer. But this person had been referred by a family doctor, but the family doctor had not told them that it was likely terminal. Very likely, because it had metastasized. And so I was sitting in this room and witnessing this conversation with this man, and his wife was there with him. And one, I felt like, I shouldn't like I felt like I was violating this very sacred moment. Um, but I also felt at the very same time like this immense honor to be just in the presence of such an experience of 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 the reality of life. I left that experience and I had always been considering and thinking about my own potential, like my own how do I change, how do I get people to change? I was a sales rep, so I want to be able to change their behavior. But I saw in that moment and then the research on survivorship that people find out something like that or they're told they're palliative. And then all of a sudden, like the lights come on and the, it's kind of like that moment in an emergency room where people are like, if you just gave me like another week, I would fucking change my whole life. And I thought, how do you create that without creating that? Like that, I was like, what's the secret pill because if that pill would be amazing <laughs> you know like but what is it like what how do you go from we already have it that's the that's the craziest thing is actually everyone has it like you just have to realize like wow like this situation <laughs> yeah my hair is, is on like, its way so you know it's not lasting yeah, I'm. I may not be here tomorrow. You know, I I have a a friend, and 
when we say goodbye, we're like, see you next time if I'm not dead. <laughs> right. And it sounds like that's morbid, but it's true. And actually, it's so much fun. We always right. laugh like, ah. like, and if I'm dead, I'll come back and haunt you. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> that's great. You know, it's just, you know, it's true. Mm. And just realize like, this is it, folks. This is our ride. Like, we're going down the slide. We're like, wee, you know, like that. <laughs> like, here we go. And how will you use, as, you know, many great poets and singers have always said, like, this one precious life. Like, how are we going to use it? Because they're saying that because they know. They do. Anyone who's been to the edge, who knows death, is freer. You know, it's like why a million years ago they would study, you know, memento mori and have like reminders of death around them because it would help them live more fully. And we also live in, you know, we, you know, there's a whole thing to say about our society kind of just like putting it to the side because we just want us to, you know, want people to buy more cream, you know, to <laughs> right, get more injections, get more no, I changes. Won't. Right. Don't I look young? It's like, you're still your age. You know? <laughs> still going to die. The irony, I mean, right? If it makes you feel okay, then that's whatever. But it's, you know, but there's something even better available to you, which is called life. Yeah, there's a potency to the simplicity of what you said. Like, you already have it available to you. The trick, it's almost like, you know, when the, the teachings about Zen, where it's like, how do I wake up? Like I'm awaiting to be awakened. And then it's like, well, the pursuit of it is is the perception you don't have it. Like that. So thank you. Because when the simplicity of knowing that actually the way to release, because the commonality of every subject we've talked about in terms of embracing death, which is liberation, is that everyone was confronted with the reality of their mortality. That's it. Yes. It was just so immediate, perceptually immediate. You know, there's this, there's this symbol, you know, that we know now is called this, we call it a SWAT sticker, right? The Nazi symbol, right? Which is, you know, and some, for many people, it's like the symbol of death, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and Hitler used that symbol for the Nazi party. But the interesting thing is, it's also a very, it's a Buddhist symbol. And it, the symbol actually means Mount Sumeru. It's this mythical mountain that means it's the center of everything, that you're nowhere else. So the interesting thing, you'll sometimes see like Buddhist statues with like, it looks like a swat sticker on their chest. It just means like, I'm nowhere else. Mm. So like the amazing thing is like just everything, like fear and fearlessness and life and death, Nazis and like being nowhere else are all here. And our ability to live fully and wholeheartedly and untangle the whole business is always available and we can be nowhere else. And so that we can realize how precious life is and how amazing life is. I mean, the whole thing is extraordinary and delicious if you can be here. You can taste the bitter and the 
and the salty and the savory and the unami, like all of it. And then we'll be dead, you know? And then (laughs) (laughs) we might as well like have the supreme meal, you know, Dogen, the one the founders of ours and school said, you know, that life is the supreme meal, but you have to have it. Yeah. Wow. You have to let yourself indulge and and experience and always right here. Right. Here's the supreme meal. Koshin, I could, t- I could honestly, I could talk to you for hours. I'm mindful of your time and, and want to say just, Huge. I've experienced tremendous insights just through this short conversation and laughs. And it was actually, honestly, like I expected to have a lot of fun and have a deep dive, but it's, it's actually brought me so much more than I could have ever imagined. I am curious for the people listening, which we'll make sure we put all the details in the show notes, but where can they find more of you? Where can they find more about your work, uh, the center and who might go to the center of contemplative care? Yeah. So the New York Zen center, we are here in the island of Manhattan, off the coast of New Jersey, zencare.org, or on Instagram, New York Zen Center. And I'm on also on Instagram at Koshin Paley Allison. And you can find my books anywhere books are sold, Untangled, Wholehearted, and A Week at the Bedside. And the Zen Center is available for anyone who is interested in Zen training who are interested in contemplative care training and bringing their values and what they care about and their actions together. Kind of actually what our talk conversation was about. We have mm-hmm. an amazing training called Foundations in Contemplative Care, which is nine months. You could be anywhere in the world and do it. And it's for folks, musicians, lawyers, nurses, social workers, acrobats, everybody. And uh, and we also have a training called the um, Contemplative Medicine Fellowship, which is for physicians and nurse practitioners, um, which is a year-long training. So, but basically everyone's just welcome. We have meditation and available to everyone. We do twice a year in these things called Commit to Sip for 90 days, bringing 16 amazing Zen teachers from around the world to come and like, let's just take a look and practice together, build some community. Uh, It's awesome. And when you come to the city, Mark, hang out. I can't wait. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you. 